Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Jacqueline Marks, a member of the club's Environment and Natural Resources Forum and your chair for today. Welcome to the panel titled Renewable Energy for California, Challenges and Solutions. We welcome our listening audience and we invite everyone to listen to us online at www.commonwealthclub.org. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished panel. Our moderator is Cliff Chen, a senior energy analyst for the Union of Concerned Scientists Clean Energy Program. Mr. Chen provides technical and policy analysis to advance effective renewable energy and climate change policies at regulatory and legislative agencies in California. Prior to the Union of Concerned Scientists, Mr. Chen was a researcher at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and a consultant at Synapse Energy Economics. To my left is Diane Fellman, currently, and she currently serves as the Director of Regulatory Affairs, West Region for FPL Energy, and is responsible for state and local regulatory and governmental affairs. Prior to joining FPL Energy in late 2004, she, she practiced California energy regulatory law through a private practice. She has also worked in the public sector at the California Public Utilities Commission, the California Energy Commission, and the Ohio Power Siting Commission. She also has a solar barbecue. <laughs> Paul Douglas is the manager of renewable procurement and resource planning at the California Public Utilities Commission. Paul is responsible for the design and implementation of the Commission's Renewable Portfolio Standard Program, the largest program of its kind in the nation. To date, the program has resulted in approximately 6,000 megawatts of contracts for renewable generation. Carl Zakella is Sierra Club's Director of Western Renewable Programs. He is a 21-year-old veteran of the Sierra Club and previously served as the Regional Director for the Sierra Club's California, Nevada, Hawaii Regional Office and is the Midwest Regional Director. Mr. Zakella is one of 1,000 Americans trained by Vice President Al Gore and the Climate Project to present the Global Warming Slideshow, featured in An Inconvenient Truth. His dogs, Lamb Chop and Dudley, are his most trusted advisors. <laughs> Roy Kuga is Vice President of Energy Supply at Pacific Gas and Electric, 
which is responsible for procuring natural gas and electricity for customers in Northern and Central California. This includes renewable resources such as solar, wave, and biogas. Roy was an avid surfer who grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii, and in his younger days, before he became a risk-averse utility employee, <laughs> he could be seen skateboarding down Twin Peaks. <laughs> now I'm going to turn it over to our moderator, Cliff Chen. Thank you very much, Jacqueline. Good evening. So I've been blessed with the incredibly easy task tonight of getting these distinguished panelists to my left to speak their minds on California renewable energy policy. Given my experience in interacting with them, I'm, I'm not anticipating that that's going to be a problem at all. Um, so so we're, we're, here, we're here tonight to talk about renewable energy in California. Uh, just a, a, a few background facts. The state currently gets about 11% of its energy from renewable resources, such as wind, solar, biomass, and geothermal. In 2002, our state legislature passed a renewables portfolio standard, also known as an RPS. An RPS is a policy that requires a certain percentage of each utility's electricity supply to be derived from renewable resources. California's RPS currently requires 20% of the state's energy to come from renewable resources for most of the state's utilities by 2020. We're currently just at 11%, so we've still got a ways to go. But as you may have heard, 20% is just the, the tip of the proverbial melting iceberg. Assembly Bill 32, which is also known as the California Global Warming Solution Act, was, packed, was passed back in 2006 and, and requires the state to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 levels by 2020. The California Air Resources Board, which is the agency responsible for, for implementing AB 32, recently proposed a comprehensive plan for reducing greenhouse gas emissions in California that includes a 33% by 2020 renewable energy standard. A 33% renewable energy target has also been endorsed by the governor and by both of California's state agencies. The, the, the legislature has not yet passed a 33% renewables requirement, but it has initiated a stakeholder process to develop, to, to, to come up with a 33% bill. And then there's Proposition 7 um, on the state ballot in two weeks. It aims to achieve 50% renewable energy by 2025. And even Proposition 7 pales in comparison to Al Gore's challenge of reaching 100% clean energy within 10 years. So as is often the case in California, we've got a lot of ambitious targets and goals for environmental progress. The, the public support for clean energy has never been higher. Yet I think it's safe to say that our renewable energy progress in California has been much slower than, than what we hoped for. Since the 20% by 2010 RPS was passed back in 2002, renewable energy's share of overall electricity supply in California has actually dropped. Less than 10% of the contracts for new renewable energy projects that, that, that the state's investor-owned utilities have signed have been built. We do seem to be having a very tough time just getting to 20%, not to mention 33% and beyond. So why has it been so hard? Well, we're going to talk about some of the challenges tonight. One of them is transmission. Most of our best renewable resources in California are located far from the areas where people work and live, requiring the construction of large new transmission lines. Achieving 33% renew renewable energy in California would likely require the construction of six or seven new long-distance transmission lines at, at a cost of over $6 billion. Some renewable resources also require significant amounts of land. Although California is one of the, the largest states in, in the union, it also has some of the strongest land protections. 45% of California's land is federally owned, including the desert where our best solar resources are located. And so far, it's proved immensely difficult to permit renewable energy facilities on federal land. So if we're going to significantly increase the amount of renewable en energy in California and achieve our goals, we'll need to address these significant project barriers. So th that's sort of the 10,000-foot view. 
we're going to dig more in, into these issues with our panelists and see if we can better un understand the, the challenges that we face in getting more renewables in California, as well as the potential solutions to those challenges. Our panelists are also going to discuss how far we, we can realistically go in, in achieving more clean energy in California and how fast we, we, can, we can get there. So we'll, we'll plan for about half an hour of panel discussion and then open it up to questions from the, from the audience. So uh, why don't we start with you, Diane, if, uh, if I could. Um, your, your company, FBL, is the largest renewable development company in the country. What's, what's FPL's view on the current status of meeting California's 20% renewable goal? Thank you, Cliff. Uh, just to introduce our company, um, not many people may have heard of it as FPL. It's FPL Energy. Uh, we are an affiliate of the utility in Southern Florida, Florida Power and Light. That's what the FPL stands for. And we are, our company is the unregulated side of the business, but we are very regulated. And we have um, a portfolio of about 14,000 megawatts nationally, and of that we have about, uh, we're moving on to about 6,000 megawatts of wind, and we also um, operate and own half of the large solar facility, which is in the Mojave Desert in California. It's the largest um, central station solar project in the world that's operating right now. So that is who our company is. We've been very active in California. We have about 700 megawatts of wind. Um, in Northern California, we owned about 60% of the Altamont, and uh, which has its own mixed blessings and curses. And then we um, also um, have, as I said, the solar project in the desert. We, in additionally, in California, we have a gas plant that's near the Arizona border. And we have 50 megawatts of coal. So believe it or not, there is some coal generation in California. And with respect to the RPS, um, we've been very excited about the California RPS. It, California is very committed to renewables. It's very committed to development. However, there have been some challenges. As um, Jacqueline said in the introduction, I've been working on California energy policy uh, with the government, starting with the government, as I like to say, when dinosaurs were roaming the earth. And uh, at the time when the first tranche of renewables were built. So in the early 80s, we had contracts and construction by uh, 1990 of over 5,000 megawatts in California, and we were a world leader in installed megawatts. Um, when the RPS came in, it was supposed to incent the development of renewables, and that was um, starting in about 2002 after the energy crisis. And what we find is that in the time since the RPS was formulated, the actual percentages, as Cliff indicated, have been uh, decreasing in terms of the compliance. We're aiming for 20% of all sales. And we have other states passing us. Uh, Texas has put in almost 5,000 megawatts of wind in the last six years. There's a county in Iowa called Story County where we're putting in about 400 megawatts of wind last year and we're putting another 300 megawatts in this year. So we have, and in California we have approximately, and Paul you probably know the exact number, is it about 600 megawatts installed now it's, under uh, the RPS? A little over 400 megawatts. A little over 400 megawatts and some of that has been imported and uh, from Oregon, some of the wind. So 
what, what's happened in California has been puzzling to many people because the um, public perception is that California is very committed to renewables and it's very committed to the um, goals of the renewable policy of the construction. I also wanted to just add um, some fun facts, which surprised me when I was getting ready for this talk. I looked on the excellent, if you want to get any information, Paul's group at the PUC, I'll give you a free uh, plug here, has done a very good job. It's, it's cpuc.ca.gov, and you just tack onto the renewable section, and they have a very good uh, layperson and um, expert explanation of renewables and what's happening in California. But um, I guess I'd like a show of hands. What do you think is, do you think wind is the number one renewable technology in California? Raise your hands if you think that's true. Can I raise my hand? <laughs> do you think it's solar? Raise your hand if you think it's solar. Actually, it's geothermal. California is very blessed with renewable resources, and geothermal, in terms of production and how it operates, its baseload, it contributes about 50% of the renewable power generated in California. Wind is at 19%. Biomass is at 14%. So that's another one of those unsexy technologies that can uh, contribute a lot to California. Small hydro, that's not the utility scale, it's about 11%. Um, biogas, which is cow manure mostly, is about 5%. And then solar is only uh, about 3% of the overall uh, renewable production in California. So in terms of how are we meeting the, uh, how are we meeting the RPS and what is happening with that, we don't see that geothermal is really what's being pushed. We don't, and wind has challenges. Um, solar, again, you, can, you have to build a lot of solar to get the contribution numbers that you need. And the least sexy of all is um, biomass, which is the ultimate recycling, and that needs a lot of help. So we all share, all the technologies, though, share some of the challenges, and those are what have been um, present in terms of uh, the development up until 2010 and meeting the 20%, and these include the fact that the production tax credit and the investment tax credit for wind just passed the federal government. We have, trans and Paul, I think, will be going into more detail on some of these issues to go to 33%. Uh, transmission, so we have a lot of new developers and new technologies coming into California. Um, financing, that's taken an even bigger hit in the events of the last week. Um, getting land in California, how do, you, how do you permit your projects? A lot of California is zoned out of development, and Carl, I think, will be talking about some of that. Um, what is the proper pricing? After the energy crisis, there was, and Roy, I, I think, will hit on some of this. As, uh, after the energy crisis, there was um, a lot of, and probably many of you feel this way, you know, what, what should the price be? We don't want our rates to go up. We already pay some of the highest rates in the country, even though we have the lowest bills. Those rates still matter. And finally, just looking at um, 
you know, some of the other general developer issues. So those are the things that we face as a company coming into California. And I'll, I'll conclude with just some um, observations. These are on our company website, which is fplenergy.com. Uh, last year, about $60 billion of capital went into the power market in Cal and the global power market. Of that, about $35 billion was dedicated to renewable investment. In this country, about $9 billion went into wind. And in 2007, about $100 million came into California. So you have a global market, a global economy, as we're learning so painfully. And um, it's important for the companies like mine, when they're making a choice of how to invest that capital and where to put it, they look at what the climate is. We're still hopeful about California. We're still actively developing in California, and we're looking forward to the um, leadership and the policy uh, changes that are coming out of the um, public agencies and the legislature. So thank you very much. So uh, Paul, um we, we just heard a little bit about some of the challenges in just getting from our current 11% renewables to 20% by 2010. Um, your agency, the California Public Utilities Commission, is, re is responsible for administering and implementing the RPS for most of the state's u utilities. G given the challenges of, of meeting the state's current 20% by 2010 target, um, what are your thoughts on when, what needs to be done to achieve the 33% by 2020 goal? Okay. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, so just to put my comments into context, I have had the distinction of being in the RPS hot seat since 2004, basically largely responsible for the implementation and the design of the policy and the procurement processes for the PUC. So you know, sometimes when I talk about 33%, people say, Paul, you're a real downer about 33% in renewables. And I say, no, I think it's a pragmatic approach. And hopefully, I've learned from experience in trying to implement 20%. So I just want to throw that out there and just put my uh, comments in context. With regards to uh, the overall RPS procurement process, um, I, I would say that you know, the PUC's position is that the procurement process is working. Um, we've seen a dramatic response from the market um, every single year. 2008 was an incredible response from the market. We've seen a huge shift in the mix of technologies at the beginning of the program. It was wind and geothermal. And uh, just in the last 12 months, it's been a giant shift towards solar thermal and solar PV. A lot of money is coming into the market. We're seeing a lot of big players, FPL is one, is in the market. Uh, we're seeing a lot of market consolidation. So from our perspective, uh, we think the market is, has arrived uh, and that it's not necessarily the procurement process. And hopefully what it came clear, uh, the points that Diane was making, that it's a project development process. So having said that, you know, if we don't remove the project development barriers associated with 20%, 33% is going to be very difficult. Um, you know, we currently are forecasting to reach 20% actual generation, and there's sometimes uh, I think some people are confusing how we count RPS compliance, whether it's signed contracts or generation. In this case, it's RPS compliance is based on generation. We're forecasting that to be reached around the 2013 timeframe. Um, but that only gives the utilities seven years to increase the renewable generation 60% by 2020. That's an incredible challenge. Uh, so while the PUC is very supportive of going beyond the existing 20% target, you know, I, especially given the recent GHG legislation, um, I think that 
Greenhouse. Excuse me, greenhouse gas legislation. Um, I think the decision makers and the ratepayers really need to have a frank dialogue about the magnitude of 33% and associated challenges. When I talk about 33%, it's, I find it's, it's always challenging for the listener to understand what is the magnitude of 33%. What are we talking about? And I, and I was like, I'm very much into sound bites. I said, it's California's Manhattan Project. That always gets uh, people sitting up in their seat. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the generation associated with 33% is going to be equivalent of 100,000 gigawatt hours of generation to reach 33%. And to put that in perspective, PG&E's uh, electric bundled retail sales for 2008 is 85,000 gigawatt hours. That's a lot of generation. Um, also, we're talking about seven major transmission lines. Um, that, you know, again, to put that in perspective, that's like building seven interstate highways. It is uh, very challenging. Um, so that is just the challenges associated with 20%, and um, I think 33% also brings up new issues. Uh, one issue would be how to operate the transmission safely when you are interconnecting uh, such a huge amount of intermittent generation to the system. And for those of you who are not familiar with the challenge, uh, the, the way to look at this is that to operate the transmission system, uh, electric consumption has to equal generation. If there's a mismatch, you destabilize the transmission system, and then you have grid reliability issues, and that is a constraint. That's not something you can play with. I don't think anyone really appreciates rolling blackouts. So the, the challenge for the state is, you know, what resources do we need to support intermittent renewable generation? And, you know, an example would be flexible fossil units that could, as wind drops, the flexible fossil would ramp back up to balance load and uh, generation. But the challenge is that, you know, we have a Clean Water Act. Uh, Department of Water Resources is looking at uh, potentially closing a lot of the fossil units on the coastline because they use water to cool to... Uh, and we need those resources to provide the, the support for renewables. So that's something we need to think about. Uh, renew, increasing renewable generation costs. Uh, in, since 2004, the costs have gone up dramatically um, in renewable and in the fossil procurement sector. Uh, commodity costs, steel, wire, staff, even the large cranes used to lift the wind turbines are in shortage. Um, you know, it's, it's been a real eye-opener. In the last six months, costs have gone up 10%. And so it's, you know, what I thought I knew 12 months ago is quickly out of date. And so it's, it's been a real challenge from uh, the regulatory perspective trying to uh, manage this program. Um, so I think also uh, we should highlight that 33% is a real paradigm <coughs> shift for the regulatory agencies from a procurement planning perspective. Um, you know, we've always been dealing with a fossil paradigm for the last 100 years. And all of a sudden now we're looking at increasing the renewable uh, generation to 33%, that basically means, though, the utilities have to sign more than they actually consume. The net result, a net result would be that they dispatch down their existing fossil plants 11% by 2020. So how do we deal with that? Um, every single renewable decision going, excuse me, every single procurement decision going forward then, that means it has to be a renewable decision, and every fossil decision you make has to be in response to the renewable decision you just made a second ago. That's a total 180 for us, and that is, it's pretty challenging for us to get our brains around that. Um, so I think given the associated challenges and the cost, the state needs to really articulate clearly what is the overarching reason for 33%. You know, is the goal to promote economic development in California? Is it energy independence? Uh, or is it GHG reduction? If, we're, if the main driver is a reduction of greenhouse gas, 
then the state must consider the GHG impact of the generation transmission development needed for 33%. It's not net zero uh, emission. There are emissions associated with renewable generation and the construction operation of transmission. Uh, renewables also should can be compared to GHG reduction measures such as uh, energy efficiency and demand response. You know, some people don't like hearing that, but they are cheaper than renewables. Uh, and then lastly, the state should cons uh, consider least cost, best fit resources uh, in state and out of the state if we are solving for a uh, greenhouse gas reduction uh, equation. So the bottom line, uh, I think to get to 33%, we need an integrated approach uh, to resource and transmission planning that has never really been done before. Um, and I think that if we don't do it, we're not going to get to 33% in a, in a cost-effective and a timely fashion. Uh, and, you know, I think lastly, I, this, is, this issue really needs a very frank dialogue between the ratepayer, the legislature, the utilities, and the regulators regarding the cost, the implementation challenges associated with 33%, and also what is the cost if you don't do anything? And that's a very hard thing to articulate to someone who cannot pay for their gas, can't handle their mortgage, you're asking them to think about 20, 30 years down the line, um, how do you want to you know, address climate change? Thanks. So Carl, we've, we've heard quite a fair amount now about transmission and, and, and how that seems to be the primary barrier to uh, getting more re renewables in California. Um, environmental organizations like the Sierra Club are often less than, than thrilled about the prospect of building huge and new transmission projects in uh, pretty re remote air areas of the state. What do you think it will take to get environmental groups to support new transmission lines and large-scale renewable power facilities? Well, thanks, Cliff. Well, first thing I think it's going to take, um, and good evening, everyone. First thing I think it's going to take is people have to look at uh, what's going to happen if we don't do this. Um, you know, I think we look at 33 percent, and as Paul just detailed, it's a very challenging thing to do to get our renewable profile up to 33%, but 33% is a stepping stone to where we need to go on climate change. It's not even, you know, all the way there by any stretch of the imagination. We're in the process of transforming the way that we power our economy. That is the real challenge in front of us. The thing I think we have to keep in mind is that, and environmentalists need to keep in mind, is that while this has a lot of challenge for us, it also has a great deal of opportunity for us, too. Um, if we don't get a grip on climate change and we don't get a grip on climate change quickly, um, we're going to see mass extinctions in this country and in the world. And California has the second highest level of endemism of species in the United States after Hawaii. We've got a lot to lose if we don't get a handle on this. We've got a lot to lose in terms of our water supply in this state. Uh, the projections are if we aren't able to, to do the things that we need to do to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions quickly, the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada mountains is going to decrease by 80% by the end of the century. Think about that. That's the drinking water supply for 30 million people and water supply in our rivers for all sorts of, of, uh, of species that we care deeply about and we're trying very strenuously to save. So we have the, the possibility of having a Joshua Tree National Park without Joshua Trees. They're literally on their way out. High elevation species in California will disappear probably within the next several decades, and I don't know if there's anything we can do to prevent that. Um, the challenges, the consequences of inaction are fabulous. We have to be honest with ourselves as the environmental community that we have a major role to play in making this happen. 
I have to be honest with you, uh, Cliff, you joke a little bit about how we're not really keen on transmission lines. Well, this is the first time in my 21-year career that I've had to work on trying to build transmission lines, and I've certainly stopped a couple in those 21 years. So this is truly a challenge in the way we think about this problem. Um, climate change compels us to think differently about our work. It compels us to be more responsible, not that we've been irresponsible, but to be responsible about contributing to the solution. There's no impact-free energy source. There just isn't, no matter what anyone says. Paul just made that point. We have to realize that what we're doing is heading off much worse um, uh, problems. And the renewable energy supplies that we have, as Paul also properly mentioned, are part of a bigger picture. Uh, energy efficiency, demand-side management, these things are cheaper than any other energy source, not just renewables. They're cheaper than anything we can do. And we need to do a lot of them. We need to do a lot of them fast. Diane mentioned 2001, we had our energy shortage here. I hesitate to call it a crisis because it was manufactured. Um, but nevertheless, uh, a $50 million advertising campaign promoted by the state of California resulted in the conservation of so much energy that we didn't have a single blackout during the summer of 2001. Think about that. That was about the output of eight natural gas fire power plants that we saved that summer. We could not have built those power plants fast enough. There is no one way to deal with this problem. Um, we aren't going to get there with rooftop solar by itself. It's painfully slow. We need to really reassess the kinds of, of uh, financial incentives we use to accelerate the development of that, because the more of it that we can get, the less we have to deal with on the transmission side. If we want environmentalists to really engage, we're going to have to make them understand that we're considering several important factors. We're looking at remotely constrained resources here that require a lot of transmission. But if we look at our existing infrastructure and seek to upgrade it so that we're only building that which we really need to build in order to meet our goals, environmentalists will understand that and respond to it. If we're looking at trying to guide development onto the least sensitive environmental lands, the least endangered species habitat, for example, people will understand that and will be more willing to accept the results of this process. If we're looking at a larger output of energy from a compact footprint, if we're not spreading it out all over everywhere, people will respond to that and they will be more willing to accept it. And if we're not just focused on remote renewables and we are looking at the big picture and we do understand that we need all the various renewable energy supplies to help meet our goals as well as efficiency, people will know that we're doing our full job and we're not just putting all of the burden on the public lands in California, which are extraordinarily biologically rich. And that's part of our problem, as Cliff mentioned. So I think these are some of the key features of what we need to do. The good news is, is if you look at the things I've just mentioned and you look at them from a generator standpoint or from a transmission planning standpoint, what you find is that these features also reflect the lowest cost for developing the resources. Because what it means is you're closer to existing resources, including the substations and existing transmission. You have fewer roads to build. You have fewer infrastructure development costs to, to develop. And we have found in the Renewable Energy Transmission Initiative process, on which I sit as an environmental representative, that the overlay between environmental values and economic values is very strong. And that's the good news. You can see a way through this process that even though it will be difficult for environmentalists who really care deeply about the desert, and make no mistake, there are going to be some, some things that are going to be compromised here. We are going to have to make some sacrifices in order to get this done.
But again, if we keep in mind the fact that uh, so much more will be lost to us, it doesn't cause us to stop in our tracks. It enables us to move forward. We are capable of ramping this up. We are going very slowly now, but I think Paul made a really important point that I'd like to reemphasize. We're doing something that's never been done before. We're involving people who aren't used to working with each other. I just spent a five hours today on a conference called Transmission Line Planners. Now, I got news for you. You know, we, we aren't even, we're all speaking English, but different dialects. <laughs> we don't all understand each other very well, and it's causing us to have to really stretch ourselves on every side to make this work. And I'm actually very encouraged by what's happening. I'm not going to tell you that it's easy, because it isn't. It's very hard work to do, very difficult to do. But at the end of the day, we need to do it. We need to work together. I want to just point one thing out to you, though, about the sensitive lands in California. As part of the Renewable Energy Transmission Initiative, we've done a real study of the protected areas in California. And working with the generators and the transmission uh, planning community, we've developed a map of areas that we shouldn't be putting projects in. And at first, when the generators saw the map, they had a little bit of a heart attack. Where are we going to go? How can we possibly build these projects? There's nowhere left. Well, we did a study of the, of the amount of energy that could be developed on the lands that were left after all of the excluded areas, the wildlife areas, the wilderness areas, the inventoried roadless areas. We, are, we live in a miraculous place, and it shows when you look at a map. But after all of those areas are taken out of consideration for development, there were 500,000 megawatts of, of capacity that could be developed in the state of California. That is 10 times our peak load, an order of magnitude greater than our peak load. It was so much that we couldn't even design a transmission system for it. We had to take a step back and literally tell the consultants, Black and Veatch, that they had to decrease the amount by 80%. And it's still twice our peak load now that we're struggling to try to figure out transmission for. And most of it is on lands that are not the most sensitive lands in the state of California, the best that we can figure it out so far. So I am optimistic. I know it's going to be hard. It's hard. What I'm working on is hard enough. Um, I think Diane and Paul have made it clear that the, the, how steep the mountain we have to climb is on this. But I believe we can get there. And we may be starting off slow, but there's a point at which we're going to turn a corner. And the development interest is there. There are billions of dollars of investment interest in the resources in California. Our, our concentrating solar resource is the best in the world. We have some of the finest solar resources within 100 to 200 miles of the large load centers in California. That compares to about 1,000 miles to wheel, excuse me, wheel transmit solar power from North Africa to some of the markets in Europe. So clearly we have an extraordinary resource. People are very excited about coming here. And I have to tell you, it's not just California that's going through this right now. The Western Governors Association is doing a similar process across the entire Western interconnection. There are wind projects that are proposed for Baja, California. There are, are wind projects and other renewable projects being proposed for British Columbia, Manitoba. A regional renewable energy market is beginning to take shape across the Western United States. That's an opportunity financially for California as well as environmentally for us to get a hold of and, get, and turn the corner on global warming and climate change. We need to not only prevent new coal plants from being built, we have to retire existing coal plants, and we have to do it quickly if we're going to meet this challenge. 
So I feel maybe a little uh, uh, naively uh, optimistic about our opportunity here, and it is an opportunity, uh, and I believe we're going to get there. And I think California's commitment is a large part of the reason why, because a lot of the rest of the country is following what we're doing, doesn't think we're crazy, sees opportunity. When a conservative state like Iowa is putting in 400 megawatts of wind, Minnesota, Wisconsin, the rest of the country is looking to contribute to this, to this effort. They began by looking at us and our RPS. They began by looking at the kinds of policies, AB 32, our Clean Cars Initiative, uh, to really see the, the, the kinds of policies to implement themselves. So I'll stop there. So uh, why don't we shift gears a little bit from talking about transmission to talking about the different renewable generation technologies. Um, Roy, I, I know that you spend a lot of time in your role at PG&E looking at potential renewable projects and evaluating their, their price and, and feasibility. Um, I was wondering what you, you could tell us about how the prices of renewables have changed over time, um, where you think they're headed, and what does that mean for getting to 33 percent? All right. Thanks, Cliff. Uh, as, as we look at the renewables uh, over the past, let's say, the past six years, in general, the costs have more than doubled. Uh, so what's driving that? Uh, and and I'm, uh, let me just preface this by saying not all renewables have doubled. Actually, solar costs actually have come down. But the ones that Diane mentioned, biomass, uh, geothermal, wind, for example, have all doubled. So what's driving that? Fossil fuels, for one. Fossil fuels is a benchmark because fossil fuels determines the competitive alternative uh, uh, or the competitive benchmark by which renewables are judged. And so as fossil fuels have more than doubled, the benchmark price has doubled, and uh, uh, the, the uh, developers have priced accordingly to where the competitive alternative is. Second is supply and demand dynamics. Uh, if we look back six years ago, uh, I don't think any state had a renewable uh, generation goal. I think very few countries around the world had renewable generation goals. If you look at it today, over 30 states plus the District of Columbia have renewable goals. Uh, multiple countries, especially in Europe and now more so uh, in Asia, are developing renewable goals. This has created a global demand for uh, renewables. And for example, the wind turbine uh, demand has uh, reached a point where uh, last year we tried to discuss uh, with suppliers of wind, wind uh, turbines uh, delivery schedules. And uh, one company, for example, said, don't bother us until 2010. We're booked up through 2010. So the demand globally, worldwide, has in part driven the price. As Paul mentioned, there are some underlying commodity elements that go into the renewable technologies like steel and concrete, and those have more than doubled in the past few years as well. Uh, and, and more energy-intensive type commodities uh, also have uh, increased, as well as skilled labor costs. And finally, there's the cost of permitting or delays. Uh, it's permitting either the the project themselves or the associated transmission to get the project's uh, power to market. And delays translate into higher costs. So the combination, uh, the confluence of these factors that actually driven the costs up, uh, it's not to say we shouldn't do the renewables, it's just driven the costs up. And uh, 
from our standpoint, we believe we're dealing with an issue that's global, climate change. We need to take the steps to address uh, reducing greenhouse gas from generation. Renewables are an important component of that strategy. And so we support moving forward with renewables in spite of the cost going up. We need to take action today to preserve and protect the earth for future generations. And uh, conservation is really an important element as, as, as this demand response, but the renewables remain and will continue to be an important component. Uh, I, I, I do want to present some successes that we have had uh, in spite of some of these challenges or many of the challenges. Uh, for example, uh, PG&E, for example, has uh, made commitments for future deliveries of over 24 percent uh, from renewables, and over half of our generation portfolio uh, is from non-GHG emitting resources. Uh, when we look at the small photovoltaic or what we call PV uh, technologies, uh, we've had tremendous success there. So PG&E has over 25,000 custo customer-based solar systems, more than any utility in the United States. Uh, half of the connections in the past year have exceeded the rest of the United States. So what, what has attributed, uh, what can we attribute that success to? It's a combination of things. In part, first of all, I thank our customers. Our customers are very en en environmentally uh, conscious and have a strong environmental ethic. Second, they have early adopter mentality. And so the customer base I think we're dealing with uh, are, have, have spent a lot of time uh, educating themselves about the issues of climate change as well as uh, solar technologies and are early movers. Second, uh, we have a very energized uh, employee workforce. They're very passionate about doing this. Third, we've, we've been able to work very closely in partnership with uh, the Public Utilities Commission, with the policymakers, and with the industry themselves. And that kind of education and training and communication has served the entire community very well to where the installa installers have been trained by PG&E, uh, the distributors are trained in finding ways to streamline the process. They provide us feedback to allow us to actually uh, reduce the time to interconnect customers. So there, there are ways that, that we are working, but nevertheless, I agree with uh, Carl and, and some of the challenges that we face. I commend Carl and the Sierra Club for actually taking a very active role early in the process, for example, on transmission planning. Uh, this is not something that we've seen in the past where we have folks come out of uh, they come out with their positions well into the process when a project is well baked and, and proposed to move forward. Uh, we have a lot more involvement of stakeholders today. We have a lot more involvement of policymakers. We have uh, the legislators, the governor's office, all trying to find ways to actually streamline the process, accelerate the process, and to achieve the goals that we need to achieve as a state and as a nation. We'd like to remind our listening audience that this is a program with the Commonwealth Club of California, and you are listening to Renewable Energy for California, Challenges and Solutions. So uh, if I could, I'd like to go straight to the uh, questions from the audience. Um, thank you, panelists, um, for your initial remarks. Um, a, lo a lot of questions about what uh, other, other countries are doing and, and, and why they have more than 11% re renewables, which is what California currently has. 
It's a question specifically about uh, what, are, what are known as feed-in tariffs, which are fixed price payments for renewable energy. Um, th this question reads, Germany, Spain, and others in Europe have put a very significant amount of solar generation in a short period of time using a feed-in tariff approach. Um, what do the panelists think about California's p potential for using this approach to significantly increase solar generation? Um, why don't we start with Paul, and then uh, I believe Carl and Roy probably have perspectives on this as well. Um, you know, from the PUC's perspective, I think it's always important when you're proposing new policy, you have to ask, your question, ask the question, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Um, you know, as I said at the, at the beginning of my presentation, you know, I don't think it's the procurement process. Um, I think it is uh, project development barriers. Uh, and also I want to point out that, you know, the premise or the foundation of the RPS program is competitive solicitations pursuant to statute. The state has expressed a desire to procure through competitive solicitations. So having said that, with, you know, with a feed-in tariff, uh, they have been very successful in Europe. Um, but I think that it's important that when you take the feed-in tariff model from Europe, you have to figure out how do you apply it to California. So I look at the California issue right now. We're looking at uh, generation uh, on rooftops or commercial buildings under one megawatt. You look at generation between one and 20 megawatts that could interconnect to the distribution system, your poles outside your house. And then you're looking at the utility scale generation between 20 and you know, 800 megawatts up to. Um, you know, and I think there are different problems and different solutions. So just to break it down, you know, um, feed-in tariffs, in my mind, you do two things. One, it's either to in, uh, incentivize the market or you're trying to lower your transaction costs. And, you know, I think given the latest response we've had in the RPS solicitation, the large developers, big balance sheets, number of participants, I think the market has arrived. Um, you know, and so from our perspective, I don't see the value of a feed-in tariff for utility scale generation above 20 megawatts, um, I think it's, it would be challenging to implement. If we had done it eight years ago, that might have been an option, but you know, we've, we've invested a lot of institutional capital uh, and the market is responding to that appropriately. I think also the challenge for utility scale feed-in tariffs um, you know, is that the terms and conditions in a contract between the buyer and seller, that is the allocation of risk. You know, I don't want to pay for that if this happens. You're going to pay for that if that happens. You know, within feed-in tariff, the allocation of risk is largely all in the rate payer. That's how you get everyone to sign up for it, the generators, because all the risk is on the rate payer. And I think that's a really big policy call. I mean, that is, that is something that I think the state really would need to take on head-on uh, before you could say, yes, feed-in tariffs do matter for above 20 megawatts. So the second reason for doing feed-in tariffs would be lowering transaction costs. And you know, from the PC's perspective, uh, I think anything below 20 megawatts, there is a transaction cost to negotiate, to execute the contract, file with the PUC, approve the contract. Uh, you know, the amount of work we put into a five megawatt project versus a 100 megawatt project, you know, on balance, I would say I'd probably prefer to spend all my time and energy on the 100 megawatt project. So I think there is some benefit in lowering the transaction costs for projects below 20 megawatts. Um, what that process is. It might be a feed-in tariff program. I don't know, but I think we need to um, have um, some analysis and, and take a step back and say, you know, you can do a feed-in tariff below 20 megawatts, or you can do an RPS program above 20 megawatts, or you can do a combination of both. And I think, you know, there needs to be some pretty frank dialogue about, you know, how would you do that? So. <clears throat> I think um, this is an issue where um, Paul and I don't completely see eye to eye. I don't dispute what he just said, but 
I do think that if you look at distributed generation under 20 megawatts in California, the pace of development is so slow, it is painful to watch. And our incentives are not adequate to get larger ramp-ups of those resources into play. One thing you can say about a feed-in tariff is it uh, has a spectacular effect on early ramping up of distributed generation resources. That is the strength of this program in Germany and Spain. In fact, they had, their, they had to scale back in both countries because the response was so great. The good thing about how you can look at a feed-in tariff and change the design is they're flexible enough that they can be tailored to a place like California. I do think if we want to have the benefit of um, distributed generation at load, we have to do something different than what we're doing, and we have to look at models that have been proven to work. It's not to say that we adopt what they did in Germany wholesale or what they're doing in Spain wholesale. We have to make something that works for us. And I do think that Paul's right. It's a policy call. That's something that's going to require some guidance. But it's a tool that needs to be on the table. I don't think we can afford to ignore tools that work. That is silly, especially given the magnitude of the challenge that we have. And I don't think Paul's suggesting that we do that, by the way. Um, but I, I really believe strongly that this needs to be part of the conversation. And it will be. There's a number of states in the United States that are considering feed-in tariffs right now. Michigan is considering one. Florida is considering one. There was a bill in the last legislature on feed-in tariffs. Didn't make it to the finish line. But the conversation is beginning, and I think that's a healthy thing. I don't know that a feed-in tariff that we adopt will look very much like the German variety. I can't say right now what it would be. But I do think that they have shown us an instrument that is actually fairly cost-effective. It does require a high premium price for energy going onto the grid. But what they've found in Europe is it's a very small portion of the utility bills that people actually pay because, obviously, um, the renewable contribution overall to their mix is, is not that great. And you're looking at about 3 to 5% or less on utility bills that are uh, re related to feed-in tariffs, at least in the data that I have seen. So it's not like that's something to be so fearful of. Yes, it does require paying a premium price. But if it, it helps us to scale up quickly in a very important sector of our renewable market, I think it's important to do. Uh, another uh, point about the scale and design of feed-in tariffs is um, they have proven to be cheaper than some of the other mechanisms out there. In Europe, studies have been done comparing renewable energy credit markets with feed-in tariffs. It's just another way of financing uh, the construction of renewable energy resources. And feed-in tariffs, because of their relative simplicity, just a price over time, a contract that does not require um, a great deal, it doesn't have to require a great deal of administrative uh, burden. Although in both Germany and Spain, they've had to pay a lot of attention to how they restructure it. Um, but initially, the idea itself, if done properly, does not require a huge administrative burden either. So overall, it's actually not been as expensive as it has would otherwise appear to be. It's a little counterintuitive in that respect. I guess we could be here all night debating feed and tariffs, but, but I think uh, what I'll offer is, is, is a couple of perspectives. Uh, I, I agree with Carl that the, uh, if, if uh, we look at the pace, the pace has been slow, although when you look at the customer-connected 
solar systems on PG&E system. The pace is outpacing anyone in the U.S. and I would say on par or, or better than uh, many German or Spanish companies at the customer level. So uh, at the end of the day, it boils down to price. How much are we willing to pay more for uh, these mid-sized projects relative to what's already in place? Uh, and, and let's look at the, the uh, California Solar Initiative. $3 billion of subsidies have been earmarked for customer solar systems. We have a net metering provision. This is where if you have a solar system, your meter actually turns backwards. So you could, at the end of the day, not have any utility bill, bill payment uh, as, as you look at your usage versus the, the uh, generation from your systems. We also have federal tax credits that, starting January, are not capped. So uh, in the past, they've been capped, or through the end of this year, they're capped at $2,000 per, per uh, taxpayer. So the, these, there's an immense level of subsidies. In Germany and in Spain, there are no tax credits. There are no net metering credits. There is no California Solar Initiative $3 billion uh, subsidies. So we have a very different paradigm. They've chosen a feed-in tariff at premium prices to uh, stimulate their market to create jobs in the country. The costs of these programs are spread to every taxpayer in the country. Uh, so they have a national program. In, in California, uh, we even have a fragmented electric system where municipal utilities serve 30% of the load. Utilities serve, private utilities serve 70%. Uh, and then we have 30 states with different renewable generation goals. So we have a very different starting point. And so the paradigm is not necessarily applicable. Uh, at the end of the day, we like to get the best price for our customers. We want to make sure the resources that uh, people are committing to actually show up so that we don't have shortages five years from now when we didn't plan to have uh, supplemental generation to uh, fill in the gap. So uh, it's important that we balance this, and I agree with Paul. We need to determine at the end of the day what objective are we trying to achieve. If we're just trying to achieve more renewables for the sake of having more early on, uh, there's going to be a price for that. Uh, if we're trying to look at finding ways to reduce greenhouse gas uh, at the, the least amount of cost, then there are other mechanisms like the competitive solicitation processes that Paul described that enable us to achieve those goals. So a lot of things to keep in mind. All right, next question has to do with the credit crisis, and I think I'm going to direct this at Diane as our resident uh, renewable energy project developer. Um, the, the question reads, how will the issues in the credit market, the falling price of oil, and the slowing economy affect the ability of governments to enact renewable energy requirements, given the, the difficulty in getting financing to get new sources of energy online? That's a very good question, and I wish I had the answer to that. I, the, implica the implications of the credit crisis on the uh, renewable energy business and climate change investments uh, that go beyond renewable energy uh, will uh, the story of how that will end um, how that story will end is yet to be written in terms of um, I think we're seeing a lot of uh, articles in the paper in terms of renewable investment um, many companies who have new technologies are going to rely on venture capital they're going to rely on the kinds of investment that probably will be drying up First, our company happens to be 
anchored by a regulated utility, so we have a much different um, perspective. I think, <laughs> looking out at the audience, I think about half of the solar <laughs> companies in the state are sitting in the audience, so if somebody wants to jump up, we can have audience participation. But uh, <laughs> So, and we have all types. We have an international company, we have our company, we have some startups here, and um, and again, the question's going to be what does, and I think teeing off what you said, Roy, what does society want to choose in terms of how it makes an investment and will the, and what can we do, as Paul said earlier, if we don't invest now? We, we will need energy in the future. We will need um, more, I mean, people want to have their lights go on when they flip the switch. People will, con our population will continue to grow. How are we going to meet the energy demand of the growing population? So right now, uh, again, we're at a, um, even before the credit crisis, we were at a, um, I, I always like to say, as Yogi Berry used to say, if there's a fork in the road, take it. We were at a point where we had to choose what did the future look like. Paul's been <laughs> concentrating on that. Um, you know, how, what kinds of choices are made for procurement. So uh, it's really going to be up to the citizens to direct the policymakers and the elected officials to either hang tough to some of the uh, policies that are already in place or to, um, you know, choose not to do that and uh, in the future we end up with a more fossil-based um, electricity system. I think we'll see that the costs of that fossil future or a nuclear future, which is an alternative for clean <coughs> uh, generation, are going to be just as expensive in the short term as well as in the long term. So again, uh, this is an opportunity to let people know. I, I don't know if you take letters or emails, Paul, from the citizens at large. The PUC has a public advisor. The Energy Commission is very um, open to public participation and um, to voice your concerns so that the, if you have a particular choice on what you want your energy future to look like, you uh, express that now. Um, another opportunity to provide input uh, would be uh, Sacramento, the legislature. Currently, they're working on legislation to go to 33%. And if you have thoughts or concerns, talk to your representative. Uh, you know, it's, it's happening fast and furious, and cost, uh, opportunity cost, if you don't do something, uh, is something that um, you know, I think the representatives in the legislature need to hear. I'd like to add something, though. Um, you know, the credit crunch is going to create a lot of problems for us, already has, and will continue to, especially for financing for larger projects. But I think we have to also look at the other side. Um, these, these programs are creating jobs. In fact, there's a new report in this week that just came out on the amount of jobs that have been created here in California as a result of our renewable energy um, programs, and it's quite substantial. Um, there is uh, a new Apollo program uh, report out that also details a course of action to actually expand jobs. I think we should and could look at renewable energy development as a stimulus package in this country mm -hmm. to create jobs. We cannot afford to lose momentum on meeting the climate change crisis, but we should also be looking at 
the opportunities to our economy for making these steps happen and happen quickly. Um, I think a major investments uh, are coming in infrastructure, uh, not our roads, highways, bridges. This is going to happen. It's going to look a lot, a lot like the 30s in a way. But part of that has to be devoted to renewable energy transmission. Part of that's going to have to be, I think, devoted towards creating jobs in green manufacturing so we don't have to ship collectors from halfway around the world. What's the carbon footprint of that to get to California? Uh, I think there are a lot of people who are interested in locating those kinds of businesses here in California. We may have to examine some of our tax policies to help them do that. Uh, there are policy choices at every step of the way here. But I think we should not lose track of the enormous financial opportunities that this presents. So unfortunately, we've reached the point in our program where there's only time for one last question. And uh, bad news, Roy, it's, it's coming to you. <laughs> A lot of the questions from the audience have to do with what PG&E is or isn't doing to increase its supply of renewable energy. So I'm going to paraphrase um, a lot of these questions um, as follows. So uh, PG&E has not been the strongest supporter of expanding the, our current renewables portfolio standard to 33 percent by 2020. Why is that so? And um, if not 33 percent by 2020, then what targets should the state be shooting for? Well, th th there, there's a lot tied to whether it's 33 percent or some other number. But as, as a general policy, PG&E has been crystal clear. We believe we need to do everything we can uh, to, to help stem the impacts of global warming. And uh, as, as we look at the discussion that we've had earlier today, uh, the 20% the, the issue has its challenges. Setting the goal to 33% does not resolve those challenges, whether it's transmission, permitting delays, the, the way in which uh, we're actually implementing some, some of these uh, technologies and the state of the technologies. So uh, fundamentally, we're working very aggressively to find ways to unclog the transmission. We're finding ways to uh, work with the different stakeholders to streamline the process to allow what we know can happen, like with the customer solar systems, to accelerate the deployment. We've made the financial commitments to uh, uh, counterparties, uh, people who can develop projects well in excess of 20%. And we're working with them very closely with the local communities uh, to, to help uh, facilitate the development of those projects. We're working, we have a very aggressive emerging technology uh, program. We need to be cultivating today the technologies for the next generation of renewables. We can't just sit and be happy with what we have today. So we're, we're, we're meeting with technologists from around the world, from Israel to Spain to uh, Japan to Australia. We're importing those technologies to California. We're looking at uh, the, the capability of wave technology, for example, off the coast of California. The Electric Power Research Institute did a study. They said potentially 20% of California's electricity needs could be met through wave energy. We have very energetic waves out off the coast of California. Well, let's find ways to tap that. We recognize that some of this may not be the lowest cost today, but we need to make the investments and to work collaboratively, private sector, public sector, uh, academia, that kind of coordination to help uh, stimulate this, this marketplace. We work very closely with venture capitalists. We want that venture capital invested in clean technologies. We, are, we sponsor a clean tech uh, open where we have new business plans proposed. 
In fact, one of the uh, renewable projects that's uh, slated to come online in January is, is a winner from that process. Two years ago, it was a business plan. In two months, it'll be generating electricity using a brand new technology. That's, that's kind of uh, uh, innovation and passion that we need to have. And, and working with all of the folks on this panel and, and uh, folks comparable in the industry, it is a partnership that we have to work together to make happen successfully. So, so Roy, going back to the second part of that question, oh, okay. would, would PG&E support increasing the existing 20% by 2010 RPS? We, we support higher? a higher level than 20%. But again, we want to be mindful of the cost impacts of the, the uh, mechanisms and the, uh, the steps we need to take to un, un, or get past the obstacles that are in the way. And we want to make sure that we understand the broad objective. If the broad objective is to re uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, then let's look at uh, across sectors. Let's look at transportation. Uh, let's look at the plug-in hybrids, which we are. Let's look at uh, different uh, ways in which we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the most cost-effective manner. We cannot not do, uh, undertake the steps to uh, address greenhouse gas emissions. So let's do it in the most cost-effective manner. All right, with that, um, we're, we're gonna close our panel. Our thanks to our panelists for their comments here today. We also thank our audiences here, as well as those listening to the recording. And now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 105th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. <laughs>